Well, good morning, City Church. It is good to be with you here today, both with uh, you who are joining us here in the sanctuary and those who are you or who are joining us online. Uh, this wonderful Labor Day weekend, I know people are traveling all over the place. Uh, it's good to be together. And one of the beautiful things about coming together as God's people is we know that the Holy Spirit is not just bound to being in our presence here, but he can do all things and extend to wherever we might be and wherever we might be watching this morning. And so I want to welcome you all as we gather together uh, to open God's word and to worship him today. And today we're going to be continuing a series in the book of Acts that we started several weeks ago when I uh, first arrived. Uh, and we are looking at a couple of different things. And the reason that we're studying the book of Acts is it's, it's one, it's God's word. It's really important for us to, to study the entire counsel of God's word and all the different things that God has proclaimed to us. But it's also a really uh, important book, I think, even for where we're at as a community, as in a church right now. It's uh, the beginning of the New Testament church, which we have talked about, is not the beginning of the entire church. Uh, the church existed from all the way back in the beginning. We, we see these clear indications of God's people, uh, both in our creation, but also in the gathering in the beginning of God's people in the nation of Israel. And what we believe uh, is that the, the New Testament church, our church here, is an extension of that reality. And therefore, the book of Acts is not a book about the acts of God's people as they go out and follow him, although it is that, but it's primarily about the acts of Jesus Christ as he is at work continually through his people, through his church, to bring both renewal and revival to our world. And that's what we've been talking a lot about. Um, we, uh, here at City Church, we've been talking a lot about the need for renewal. How can the Lord come? How can we talk about how we find renewal in the midst of the broken world that we live in, in the midst of coming out of such a difficult time and still kind of processing through uh, this last year, most people in our culture, most people in our church are, are traumatized by that, right? And it's, it's something that is really difficult uh, for us to even remember what it's like to be together, to, to be in relationship with one another, to, uh, to worship together. These are, these are things that are, seem sensitive and new when they haven't been in the past. And it's good for us to lean into these things and ask the Lord to bring renewal, but also revival as well. Uh, that the Lord did amazing things in this chapter, uh, proclaiming his good news through his people to the world and to see the world turned upside down by the reality of the gospel going forward. And many, many people coming to realize their need for Jesus and their need for salvation in him. And so that's what we've been looking at. And today uh, we're going to continue to talk about these uh, topics, these great themes of how we can both find renewal as we study this, but also revival, uh, both for our church and our city. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us and bless our time together today in his word. Gracious Lord, as we come before you this morning, what an honor it is to be in your presence. What an honor it is to worship you. Uh, we know we don't deserve that, um, but Lord, you are a gracious and good God. Uh, you have not only come, uh, you've not only lived, uh, but you've died for us to make it possible for us to be here today. And Lord, I pray as we open up your word, as we study it, uh, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips would be honoring to you and pleasing to you, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit would also be at work, opening our hearts and minds, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of your gospel. And Lord, I pray by your grace that you would transform us, knit us to you, knit us together as your people, and then motivate us to serve you in all that we do. Bring renewal, Lord. Bring revival by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
Just to give a little context of where we are in the book of Acts as we uh, continue this series on, uh, we last week looked at the, the, the beginning of uh, kind of the ministry of God's people after Pentecost in which Peter uh, and John were walking around and they uh, came across a crippled man on their way to prayer. And Peter healed this man. Um, and as a result, it led to an enormous crowd of people gathering around and asking, what in the world just happened? How do we make sense of this reality? And Peter uses that opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that it's by his power, by his name, that these things are happening, and that they shouldn't have been surprised by that. And what we find, but that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, not only did it garner the attention of a large crowd of people in the area that came uh, to kind of learn and understand what was going on, it also uh, got the attention of the ruling class, the leaders, the high priests at the time. And they were not as happy and excited about what was happening as the crowd was. And so what we find here is the beginning of what is the very first persecution in the history of the church. And that is that the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees came along and they arrested Peter and John and they took them into prison. Um, and that's what we see here at the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, they're proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming the gospel. Uh, and they healed this man. And as a result, they get thrown into prison and dragged before the Sanhedrin to explain what they're about and what they're doing here. And what we find here is something that becomes a very strong theme in the history of the, uh, in, the, in the book of Acts. And that is that there is great internal and external growth of the gospel, amazing internal and external growth of the gospel, uh, with growing both internal and external opposition to the gospel. Anytime you get growth uh, and renewal and revival, you also get opposition. Um, and that's what we begin to see here, uh, beginning to take hold. And in the midst of this external and internal opposition that the apostles are beginning to see, being thrown into prison, being dragged before the high priests, there's incredible boldness that they're showing here in the face of this serious persecution. And it, asks, it begs this question, how in the world were Peter and the other apostles able to be so bold in the midst of this kind of persecution and this kind of suffering that they were facing? And that's what I want us to spend our time with tonight or this morning. I used to preach in the evening, so you guys are going to have to get used to that. I'll, I'll try to get used to it as well. Um, but uh, this is what is going on here. And so the question is uh, but that. And, uh, and they, I would argue... The first thing that made them so bold, allowed them to be so bold, is that they had proper expectations of what they were facing. And if you'll notice here, that's exactly what the text says. That despite the fact that the Jewish leaders had arrested the apostles, uh, that they'd thrown them in jail and forced them to appear before the Sanhedrin, which uh, just as an aside, that's kind of like the Jewish high uh, kind of Supreme Court uh, that they were coming for. This was serious business. Not everybody was dragged before the Sanhedrin. This was a big deal. Um, so that's what's happening to them. Um, but what we find here is that despite all of this and the seriousness of this situation, they seem incredibly unsurprised by all of this. It almost seems like they were expecting it. And the reason for this is because they were expecting it. They absolutely were expecting it. Jesus, back in John 15, had told them in no uncertain terms that what, they, what they must expect if they were going to be followers of his in this world. And this is what he said. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And remember, the, world, the word that I said to you when this happens, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
You know, one of my favorite Flannery O'Connor quotes is that she says in one of her essays, she says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. And the truth is, if you're a Christian in this world, you know what that means. You know how that feels, right? Western society uh, is increasing in the oddness of our faith, especially over the last 20 years. Uh, we've been through an incredible amount of cultural change, uh, shifting of worldviews, of, of altering moral values about things like identity and sexuality and purpose and meaning in this world and where we find these things, right? Um, incredibly rapid change that has occurred. And as a result of this, uh, what we find is that there is all kinds of oddness around what used to be known as something that was kind of at the center of our culture, and that's Christianity. At one point in our culture, uh, something like 85% of all people who lived in the United States claimed to be Christians. Um, and uh, being a Christian at that time uh, was seen as incredibly respectable. Uh, in fact, uh, your church uh, was the center of civic life in the United States. I did a study one time about, there was this book that was written a while back called The Third Place. You know, every culture has a third place that you go to between your work and your home. Uh, in Europe, it was kind of the pub. Uh, in the Middle East, it was the coffee house. In the United States, from the very beginning, it was the church. It was the centerpiece, that kind of third leg of our society in many ways. And because of that, you, there are a lot of things that got tied to that, that that are very odd in other cultures. You could never be elected to any office unless you were a Christian at one point in the United States, right? There are all kinds of things around that. If you wanted to have any kind of social capital, you had to be a Christian. And this just became a normal part of the fabric of our society. But over the last 20 years, we've seen an incredible collapse in what I would refer to as kind of a cultural Christianity, a nominal Christianity. If you look at the statistics, it's really interesting. Uh, historically, you've had a very small percentage on one side of what people would be considered to be atheists or non-Christians, truly non-Christians, and admit that. And on the other side, you would have a, what would be considered a large portion of people that would be Orthodox Christians, go to church every week. It, their faith really meant something to them. They were engaged in this. And then you had a large swath of people in the middle, the vast majority of our culture, who were nominal Christians. We go to church on Christmas or on holidays or on Easter. Uh, they got all of their kind of basis for their moral values and the way they made decisions off a Judeo-Christian worldview, right? This is the way our society was kind of structured. And what we've seen over the last 20 years is a collapse of that middle ground, that collapse of that nominal Christianity. And it feels like is that Christianity is dying. But what we actually see is there's a growth on one side of atheists on one side, and there's actually a growth in our culture right now of Orthodox Christianity. But that middle ground has led to a situation in which our cultural feel right now, our societal feel right now, uh, is no longer sees Christianity as respectable as it used to be, or as a centerpiece of our lives the way it used to see. Um, instead, it's increasingly being seen as regressive and narrow-minded, even bigoted oftentimes. We all know this and feel this. We live in that tension um, with work or family or all kinds of things that we're engaged in. And one of the questions in mind this past week as I was thinking through these things is, you know, what happens when an unprecedented tsunami of cultural and moral change runs into a city like Nashville that's primary idol is image? What happens? Well, I would argue what happens is what we're seeing right now. 
And that is that you get a lot of people who start questioning their faith and this, uh, you know, uh, deconstructing their faith. You get a lot of people leaving the church and turning their back on their faith. You get a lot of people uh, who were former, would formerly consider themselves to be Christians to actually be angry uh, at the things that Christians believe in in the church. Right? We all know this is the case. Even in the South now, we're starting to feel this more and more. And this should not surprise us. Should it? It shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because Jesus told us that this would happen. And the reason, though, that it does surprise us is that we live in a culture that generally allows us to escape this kind of persecution, this kind of suffering, if we're willing to make one particular kind of sacrifice, pay one particular kind of cost, and that is if we keep our faith private. Right? That's what we're told. Every aspect of our culture tells us that. It's fine for you to be a Christian, just keep it to yourself. Don't talk about it. Don't express it. Keep it to yourself. Keep it private, and everything will be good. And this kind of begs a question, and I know that this is a hard question, but I want you to think about it. When was the last time that you shared your faith with someone? When was the last time that you shared your faith with someone? In my experience, most Christians in our culture today struggle to answer that question. And I would argue that one of the main reasons that we struggle with this question is because we have had and developed false expectations about what the Christian life is all about, more based on what our culture tells us about what life should be rather than what Jesus has actually told us what life should be in the world. Uh, in his book, in the book Good to Great, it's a very famous book, most of you have probably heard of it, uh, the author Jim Collins recounts a story of an interaction that he had with this man who was named Admiral James Stockdale. And uh, Admiral James Stockdale was a man that uh, in the Korean War, I believe, uh, ended up uh, as a young man spending several years as a prisoner of war in what was dubbed the Hanoi Hilton. Um, it was a, kind of a concentration camp, it was a prison. He spent many years there with a number of American soldiers. Uh, and in an interview that he did, he was asked what the difference was between the prisoners who survived that really harsh existence and time with those who were not able to survive. And in, in the interview, without hesitation, he said that the difference was proper expectations. Those who had proper expectations were able to develop a kind of hopeful realism, he said, that helped them face their suffering boldly and survive. And those who did not, those who were constantly kind of dreaming and caught up in this idea that they were going to get away tomorrow and that they would get out of this and the suffering was just a kind of a, an imaginary thing and you can kind of imagine how prisoners kind of get into all that, quickly lost hope. And many of them just gave up and died, he said. It was these proper expectations that actually grounded people and allowed them to survive the suffering that they had. And what we find here in our culture is our culture oftentimes lulls us into the belief that life should be comfortable and easy. Everything in our culture tells us that. And this is the expectation that it, that it breeds within our lives. And therefore, we are surprised and even frightened at the very thought that we might face suffering or persecution in this world. And we're not even talking about significant persecution, are we? We're not talking about the scenes that you probably all have seen on the news over the past couple of weeks about Christians suffering in Afghanistan, being dragged out of their homes and executed for their faith. We're not talking about what happens to Christians in Iran when they admit their faith. 
and are immediately harshly persecuted for that and imprisoned for their faith. We're not talking about that kind of persecution. Most of the time we're talking about getting a really evil look from somebody, right? Or somebody may not want to invite you over to their house. Or you may get some kind of like harsh comment about some situation. These are the things that in our culture, they make us feel bad and they immediately drive us to want to kind of hide our faith away. And as a result, we can end up choosing to compartmentalize our faith and that's oftentimes what we do. Uh, Our public and religious lives uh, become compartmentalized in such a way that it leads us to stop sharing our faith together. Our faith starts to idle in our lives and we stop um, doing the mission that we've been called to be and to live out in this world. And as a result, we end up uh, not following what Jesus has called us to do, oftentimes. And this is a struggle for me. Throughout my life, I've had this struggle. I'm sure it has been for you as well. Francis Schaeffer once said that all too often we have traded our Christian armor for camouflage in this world. And I find that to be true in my own life and, and oftentimes in my inter- interactions with kind of the church as a whole. And it's something that I've spent a lot of time trying to understand. And what we need to understand in this, though, according to this passage and what's going on here, is that Jesus wasn't joking when he said that he would use us to bring his mission to bear in this world, his kingdom to bear in this world. He wasn't joking when he said that he promised to give us the Holy Spirit to empower us as we did that and to strengthen us as we sought to serve him and follow him in this world. But he also wasn't joking when he said that, he, that we will experience great persecution as we do that. And that is not an indication that something has gone wrong. In fact, it's an indication that we're actually doing the things that he's called us to. If you're not experiencing any suffering or persecution because of your faith in this world, Jesus actually says that we need to ask, are we really living out our faith? What we see here is that Peter and the apostles were well aware of these expectations, and as a result, they were prepared to face them with hopeful optimism. And the Lord used them in amazing ways to spread his gospel because of that. But that's not all. They also... They had right expectations of things, but they also had proper foundation for why they did these things. And this is what we see here in verse 5. They come before the Sanhedrin, and they immediately get asked the question, by what name are you doing this? We saw that a little bit last week, this idea of the name. uh, uh, What name, by what power are you doing these things? And Peter, we're told here, beginning in verse 5, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to say to them, Rulers and people and elders, let it be known to all you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well, speaking of the crippled man that he had healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one other, there is no other name under heaven given among man by which we must be saved. Now, when he uses this phrase cornerstone here, what you need to understand, what we need to understand is that he is quoting directly from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118, uh, in which we were given this great messianic promise that God would send one, like a son of man, who would be the cornerstone, the foundation of his people's salvation in this world. And the cornerstone, according to Peter and all of Scripture, is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the living God. He is the rock on which the very fabric of our existence has been created, and the salvation of our world rests. And this speaks to an incredible power that is at work here, 
a power that uh, Peter says, the same power that healed this crippled man who'd been crippled from birth is the same power that actually raised Jesus from the dead and is empowering them to speak boldly about this truth to them in this place and time. And he says that there is no other name in heaven on earth by which we must be saved in this. Now, that's an incredibly bold statement, isn't it? It's radical. It's something if you say that out loud in our culture today, you will receive persecution oftentimes. And if it's true, though, it challenges us to examine actually the foundations on which we build our lives. Just lean into the seriousness of this claim. Or if you see, every human being has a cornerstone by which they build their lives on. It's really important to kind of begin to unpack and understand what that may be. And that cornerstone is the basis for your identity and your hope in this world, your meaning and your purpose, the motivation for why you do what you do. For some of us, it's family. You know, taking care of my kids, making sure my kids get the best education, uh, are taking care of the best, have the best experiences in this world. That is the kind of the cornerstone of how we do everything, the decisions that we make in this life. For some of us, it's work. Um, in Boston, that was a big deal. Um, everything surrounded work. People would work 90, 100 hours a week. And you would think that that's just a terrible thing, how they, they get out of that. And they were oftentimes consumed with stress and worry and exhaustion over that, but they did not want to give that up because it was their life. It was the cornerstone by which they built everything on. And it was a huge struggle for people. Some people, their cornerstone is appearance or success or beauty or being cool, right? These are the things that we base everything on and the decisions that we make. And the Jewish leaders understood this, and that's why Peter's word here actually challenged them so much. And our culture understands it too. There are a few things in our world right now that are more offensive than the claim of exclusivity. When Christians say that Jesus is the only way, the typical response is that we are being closed-minded or arrogant or bigoted in this way. Because everyone knows that there couldn't possibly be only one way to find salvation. There couldn't be possibly only be one cornerstone in this world. And that's oftentimes the kind of the cultural narrative that we have. One of the prime cultural narratives uh, that you often hear if you read philosophical uh, writings or kind of cultural engagement uh, things is this kind of idea of that reality is kind of like uh, we are all a bunch of blind people who are trying to figure out the truth in the world. Um, and no one has a way to actually figure that out for ourselves. So reality is kind of like a giant elephant. And we're all blind people kind of groping around trying to figure out what the wholeness of reality is. And so you have some people that grab onto a leg and they say, like, reality is like this great big, you know, uh, leathery, you know, tree. And other people say, no, 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 no. Reality is like this kind of hose type thing, right? that has this kind of hole in the end, it's making all kinds of noises. And that somebody else says, you know, no, 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 it's like, a, it's like a rope with like a fuzzy thing on the end that you kind of run around. So everybody's groping this elephant on the wrong, in different ways, right? And everybody has a different view of reality because of that. And we see that as kind of a way to explain in a very tolerant way that none of us know what's really going on and all of us are trying to get to the truth but the problem with that is in order to see it that way, you actually have to have a God's eye point of view on that situation and say that I understand that it's an elephant in the first place. And that's exactly what our culture does, which as an aside is just as arrogant as claiming that something else is true, right? But we never admit that, but it's true. But let me ask you something. 
What if somebody came along and said he wasn't describing the elephant, he wasn't touching the elephant in a particular way, but he actually was the elephant? Imagine if someone said, you don't need to guess, you don't need to grope around in the dark. I'll tell you what I'm like, because I am the elephant. And what we need to understand is that is exactly what Christianity says about Jesus Christ. It's exactly what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Not that he's an elephant. I don't think anybody actually believes that. But he's God. Jesus is God. And because of that, he is the only one who can actually help us to see what is really true in this world, to help us to see the wholeness of reality. And he did all kinds of things to prove this as well. Um, And in the scriptures, we get these incredible pictures of what Jesus has done and uh, how he has proclaimed these things. You get these stories uh, like in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning upon the earth. And you read that and you're kind of like, where were you standing when you saw that, right? Or you get a, a passage like John 8, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And if you understand where the scriptures are, it's a reference back to the Old Testament uh, where Moses is in front of the burning bush and God tells him his name, Yahweh, I am. And Jesus is proclaiming that he is Yahweh. Moreover, Jesus did some amazing things to prove the claims that he was making. He healed the sick, he controlled weather. And Peter says here that even though they were the ones who crucified him and killed him, that God actually raised him from the dead and that they were all eyewitnesses of this fact. Therefore, if it's true, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one else comes to the Father through me, he's not being arrogant or closed-minded. He is just being honest. Just being honest. For if he is God, then it only makes sense that he must be the cornerstone of our lives and the only foundation for our identity and our salvation in this world. But the question that comes out of that is how do we actually know that he is this? How did you know that he is the foundation of your life and how you live out and make your decisions? And it raises a couple of questions. How many of us would be willing to miss a sporting event or our favorite TV show in order to share our faith with someone? How many of us would be willing to risk losing a friend How many of us would be willing to miss out on a promotion at work or to lose our job or to lose our possessions? How about losing our families or going to prison? How many of us would be willing to lay down our very lives so that someone could hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be saved? Now, I know that this is radical stuff. And I know it's hard to hear. It's hard to kind of wrap your head around. And at this point, it would be really easy to believe that I'm just trying to guilt you into uh, accepting my position on this or understanding this in the way that I'm talking about it. But I want you to know that that's not at all what I'm trying to do here. My mom used to actually try to guilt me into eating my broccoli by telling me that there were starving children in Africa. Classic, right? And the truth is, is that this is a common form of behavior modification that most of us participate in. We either try to guilt people into things or we scare people into things, and it can change your behavior for a while. 
You know, I did eat some more broccoli probably than I did, but you know what? I never eat broccoli now. And you could be scared into something. You can fear for losing your job. You can fear for losing something in your life that you really care about. And that will change your motivation for a while, but it will not ultimately change your behavior in the long run because it will not change your heart. And what we need to understand is it's not fear or guilt that motivated Peter and the other apostles in this passage. And the question is, how do we know that? Well, we know it because of a passage back in Matthew 16. Where Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, who do the people say that I am? And, and you know, they speak up and they say, some, of you, some people say that you're John the Baptist, some people say that you're, uh, you're Elijah, some people say that you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Um, and then Jesus looks at him and says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one that speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what you need to understand here is that Jesus is using kind of a play on words. He calls Peter a rock, and in the Greek, uh, the, the name Peter actually means rock. But what he's talking about here is not that Peter himself is the rock that he's going to build his church on. It's the proclamation that he is the Christ the son of the living God, the belief that he is who he said he is. That's what changed the world. That's what the foundation, it's Jesus' name, his power that transforms us. And therefore he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what we see here is that, you know, Peter is a person who knew very well what to expect. That there would be suffering, there would be persecution that comes. They experienced that even with Jesus. Uh, Peter was the very first apostle to proclaim that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, he got that. But Peter was also the one who went immediately out when Jesus was arrested and denied him three times. But what we see here in our passage is a very different Peter. He's bold, he's confident, he's willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. And the question is what changed? what made him into this Peter, this person who was willing to give everything up and to face persecution in this way? And the answer is the gospel. Peter was a man whose heart had been so transformed by the love and grace of God that the knowledge of his creator had actually come into this world and lived and died for him so that he could be saved so that he could know the truth, so that he could know the sweetness of what it is to be reunited with his savior and creator in this world, that it changed everything about him. And it was, made him willing to face anything in order to serve his God. And the beautiful picture of this that we see within the gospels is in John 21. It's the, the very last section in the book of John. Uh, and then this Peter, after he had committed this horrible thing against Jesus and he had denied him, even though Jesus told him that he would, we are told the story of how they were out fishing uh, after Jesus had been buried and raised from the dead. And uh, they were, apostles were all out fishing. They had kind of walked away. And all of a sudden, they look out and they see this figure on the beach uh, building a fire. 
And Peter immediately recognizes who it is. And before the boat can even begin to get to the shore, he jumps in the water and he splashes and races and runs to Jesus. And eventually all the other apostles catch up with him and they all sit down and Jesus builds a fire and he makes them breakfast. And after breakfast, he looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to die in order to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we need to understand, Jesus isn't giving Peter a guilt trip here. He is teaching him that the only basis of the gospel and of our motivation and his service and following him in this world is the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's love for our Savior. Do you know why we struggle so much to be faithful in this world and to face persecution and suffering? It's because we often forget the gospel. In fact, here's a little thing you may not have ever thought about. Every time you ever sin in any way, you are forgetting the gospel in that moment. You are loving that thing more than you're loving Jesus. You're putting your hope in that thing more than you're putting your hope in Jesus. And that's why you choose to do it. We forget the fact that the cornerstone of the universe loved us so much that he was willing to come and die for us. Therefore, we try to motivate ourselves out of that by scaring ourselves or guilting ourselves, but it never lasts, does it? It never lasts. And the reason it never lasts is because the one, only one thing can truly transform your heart to make you the person that we are called to be in this world, to obey God's calling no matter what kind of persecution we might face, and that is the deep, deep love of Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, uh, who was a famous uh, pastor in Scotland, he actually had a church right around the corner from where Kelly and I used to live when we lived in Scotland, uh, had this incredible book that he wrote, and it was called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it, what he said was, is that you can try your hardest, and you can motivate yourself, and you can kind of uh, tweak your behavior sometime by habits and getting into all these kind of programs for doing things and uh, policies and ideas about you know changing certain things. But ultimately, none of those things ever work. And if you've ever tried to do a uh, you know New Year's resolution, every one of you know that, right? How long does it last? It doesn't. What he said is the only thing that ultimately will change your heart is the expulsive power of a new affection, that you fall in love with something so deeply that it forces you, it causes you, it drives you to be willing to give that up because it doesn't matter anymore because you're overwhelmed with love for something else. And he said that that is the very heart of the gospel. You heard me say it a couple of weeks ago, how do you get over an old love? You get a new one, right? 
How do you get over your fear of suffering and persecution in this world? The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Um, I'll close with this. I saw an illustration several years ago. heard a man named Michael Milton. He actually was a pastor in in Chattanooga for a time. Uh, He went to the Lausanne Conference. Uh, I think it was in Africa, uh, the last one that they had, and uh, South Africa. And it is this great conference of mission organizations from all over the world, Christian mission organizations from all over the world. And this is what he said about that event. He said that about, uh, he was sitting in this uh, huge room with everybody there present, and they were listening to this lecture on the amazing growth of the church in Asia. Uh, And it featured a young woman who uh, he says he will never forget in all of his life. He said, standing before us, dressed in what appeared to be her boarding school uniform, she carefully read her testimony, the salient features of which uh, were her testimony that uh, when they she was young, living in North Korea, that her mother, her pregnant mother, had been killed by the regime under Kim Jong-il, and that uh, as a result, she and her father, who worked for Kim Jong-il, fled the country. Um, and they fled to South Korea, where they were taken in by, by Christians, a pastor and his wife. But while the girl remained in South Korea, her father decided that he would return to North Korea out of love for his people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ And for this, she says, he was imprisoned. And after three years, though, he was released and allowed to go back to South Korea, and they were reunited for a short period of time. Why a short period of time? Because he went back to North Korea, and he preached the gospel again, and he was never heard from again. And this is what she said. She said, they probably shot him, as they do with all others that preach Jesus Christ. And at this point, she says that she was adopted by the couple that had taken her in, the pastoral couple that had taken her in. And now after 18 years, and at the age of 18, she was in school in South Korea. She told us as she continued her careful reading, Milton says, looking up only once or twice, uh, that was just a glance at the massive crowds of over 4,000 people who were listening in, that she wanted to go to university. And there she continued, she wanted to study political science. She wanted to be involved in diplomacy in order that she might go back to North Korea and do what my father did, to share the love of Jesus with my people. And then he said her voice began to crack. And she paused and continued, please pray for my people. Please pray for North Korea that they will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said her voice And her words gave way to sob. And at that moment, the entire crowd stood and applauded her, not just because of her incredible faithfulness and the incredible wonder of the suffering that she had been through, but because of the work of God and his love through her. Because it was beautiful. It was beautiful. She had been through unimaginable horrors, Yet she freely and boldly was willing to give her life in order to return to her people and share the love of Jesus with them. And it begs this question, what are our expectations in this world? What is the foundation of our identity and our faith and our hope? And what is our motivation to follow Jesus? Can you imagine, can you imagine the impact that this little community would have in this city, in this country, 
if our hearts were transformed by the gospel the way that this young woman's hearts were. We don't need new programs. We don't need new systems. Those things are good. I'm all, you know, I love, you guys know I love good systems and organizational design and strategic planning, but that's not ultimately what we need. We need renewed heart affections. We need to fall in love with Jesus again. We need to remember the gospel and have our hearts renewed by the wonder of what he has done. We need to pray for our people. We need to pray for East Nashville, that God would work in and through us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with him, and through that, to bring revival to the city. That's what renewal looks like. That's what revival looks like. Let's pray that the Lord would use that in our hearts. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you that your word doesn't always just tell us easy things to hear. We thank you that the gospel convicts us and reminds us what's true, that it drives us back to the cross, that it drives us back to the cornerstone of our faith. And I pray, Father, this morning, that as we study this passage, that you would knit these great truths in our hearts, that you would transform our affections, that you would cause us to fall in love with Jesus anew. And through that, that you would renew us, renew our community, motivate us out of love to face the sufferings of this world and the persecutions that come when we share our faith. That you would create in us hearts, Lord, that love the people of our city so much that we would be willing to do anything so that they might know you. Because we know that you are the only hope that we have in this world. Father, we long to be this kind of community. But Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We are sinful and finite. We are broken. We are prone to run from you. We are prone to forget your gospel. But Lord, we cling to your promises that the Holy Spirit would be at work in and amongst us, transforming us, renewing us, but actually bringing revival. And we pray for revival, Lord. We pray for you to be at work and that many, many people would come to know you through this little community. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.